So this morning we have our dear Matt preaching for us and uh, just want to welcome you, Matt. So he's so glad you're, you're preaching. Step over in here and I'll pray for you and then I'll get out of the way. You can carry on. Lord, thank you for Matt. I thank you that he loves you, that you love him. You've uh, worked in his life and, and just pray that you give him yourself and your spirit this morning and give us as well the opportunity, Lord, to be with you and to know your presence. Speak to us, Lord. Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. The uh, June cover story of Christianity Today profiles Christian refugees in local churches on the Polish border with Ukraine who have mobilized to respond to the war. The story chronicles countless Christians whose lives have been upended. My favorite story is about Julia, a Ukrainian woman who runs an anti-trafficking nonprofit in Kiev who felt God telling her to leave Ukraine in February, mere days before the war started. Julia's husband is a pastor and didn't wanna leave his congregation, but encouraged his wife to follow the Lord's leaving, leading, so she fled to Poland with her two sons. She hasn't seen her husband since February. She has two nieces who were killed in Maripol, but she's working 15 hour days coordinating her agency's response, working to prevent refugees from being trafficked at the border. And when asked about the situation she's in, she says, I don't think God brought me to Poland by chance. I'm here for such a time as this. This is an incredible story of faith from someone facing immense hardship. Despite facing literal exile, Julia has not lost perspective. Here is a woman who doesn't understand why her life has been upended. And when she's faced with her doubts, she remembers that God calls out the stars like an army. She knows God gives strength to the powerless. She is literally running, but not growing weary. And I start here today because our passage is about God speaking to his people amidst hardship. It's about believers in exile who have lost perspective, individuals who could have learned something from Julia's response to her own hardship. And so with that, I wanna turn to Isaiah 40, and I wanna do a couple of things this morning. First, I wanna chew on the passage. We'll talk about Isaiah as a whole and consider what's happening in our passage in particular and talk through what God had to say to his people in this particular moment. And then I wanna think through how this passage meets us today. We'll look at how our current moment could mirror what Israel faced and how God might be speaking to us. So let's begin. A quick refresher on prophetic literature. Prophets spoke on behalf of God. And as one commentator says, they primarily appeared in times of crisis when Israel existed as a monarchy and they addressed both the nation's leaders and the overall population. And they were embedded in rather than distinct from the structures of society. So two points I wanna make on this. First, uh, prophets were embedded within culture, not standing on the outside. I often think of prophets as these nuts who lived out in the woods and wore sackcloth, but that's not actually the case. They were embedded within culture and had a really close view on what was actually happening in society in Israel. And then second, God sends prophets in terms of crisis. When things aren't going particularly well, God sends prophets to speak to his people. And so with that in mind, let's turn specifically to the book of Isaiah. And how do we wrap our heads around such a dense book? I've often ignored Isaiah in the past because I'm so intimidated by the 66 chapter book. And many scholars believe there's a distinct change in Isaiah's tone starting in chapter 40 that breaks the book into two sections. 
In the first section, Isaiah is working really, really hard to get the people to see their own preoccupation with themselves and some of the places they've fallen short. Take this excerpt from chapter one. The children I have raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Oh, what a sinful nature they are, sinful nation they are. They have despised the Holy One and turned their back on him. Must you rebel forever? Your country lies in ruins and your towns are burned. Jerusalem stands abandoned. This is basically Isaiah saying, wake up. Don't you realize what's going on? Your life and nation are in ruin. And in addition to this prose, we also know Israel has been sent into exile during this time period to make it easier to grasp the message God is trying to share with them. So in short, in part one, it's not really a great moment for Israel. It's God's people living in Babylonian captivity, likely as a result of their own sin and God trying to get them to shift their own perspective. Then starting with our passage this morning, things take a dramatic turn. After exposing their sin, now Isaiah works just as hard to encourage them to redirect their focus and remember that God is with them. This section starts with our passage and then we have 26 chapters with amazing narratives pointing towards the Messiah, deliverance for Jerusalem out of exile and God's future glory. The passage we're spending time in this morning stands right in the middle of this transition. You have a few generations of people living in exile and they're starting to doubt the goodness of God. And he says, lift up your eyes, our key word for this sermon series. Isaiah is calling them to shift their focus from their sin back towards God. And that's the message we're looking at this morning. Which brings us to the verses we read today. What is God saying in in this passage? So this is a long speech made on behalf of God, challenging Israel to reframe their perspective and remember who God is. He leaves these powerful questions hanging out in the air that are supposed to invite Israel towards self-reflection. And how about this first question? Look up to the heavens, who created all the stars? This one has me thinking of the new pictures from the James Webb telescope. Have any of you seen these, right? We're all just in awe of these crazy new images of the stars. We, We look at them and we realize how small they are. God is saying, look up at those stars. Do you see them? I call them out like an army each night calling each one of them by name. Then he goes on with a few more questions. To whom shall you compare me? Who is my equal? How can you say that God ignores you? Have you not heard? Have you not understood? Then what I love about this passage is God actually answers his own rhetorical questions. We don't often get this in scripture. So when he gives us a pretty clear response, it's a a good cue that we should listen. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths become weak and tired and young men fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. It almost preaches itself, right? And this I hear God saying, you're working so hard to try to understand what's going on with your situation that even your young men are tiring themselves out. But I've got this. You can't measure the depths of my understanding. I don't grow weak and tired like you do and I love you. Would you just trust me? I want to give you rest. It's beautiful, isn't it? After 39 grueling chapters calling attention to their sin, this is how Isaiah chooses to shift the tone. I think the underlying theme of this whole passage that God wants to address is that Israel's exhaustion and weariness 
has led them to forget God's goodness and faithfulness towards them. So he chooses to respond and remind them who he is as this hook for his transition in this passage. And so obviously this is a really famous passage and there's been a lot of ink spilled on what it could mean. Before I get into my own take, I wanna give you a quick overview of what some other commentators who are much wiser than me have said about what this passage could mean. So one thought is that an entire generation missed the point of God's word. They turned it from a source of joy to a source of judgment. You could probably understand that if that's what Isaiah is walking around saying, right? The idea here is that each generation must be taught to hear and see God's word anew. It's not enough to merely be around the culture of Israel or have proximity to God's word. It has to take shape and root itself deep down inside you. This is the message for church people, right? Just because we grew up around the church doesn't ultimately mean we get the point and understand who God is and his love for us. And I see this all the time, right? It makes me really, really sad to engage people who've been around church their whole life who still believe they honestly have to earn their way into God's grace. So that's point one. Another major theme is that Israel thought God had abandoned her because they were no longer in a position of power now that they were in a position of exile. So one commentator says this, God addresses this charge, not by insisting Israel is wrong, but by strengthening and encouraging Israel and by insisting that weakness and powerlessness are never roadblocks to God's grace, but actually serve as vehicles to help us experience God. Israel thinks because they're no longer in a privileged position that God has abandoned them, but actually God is reminding them that there's power in their weakness, that there might be a point to being in this position of weakness. When we're at our lowest point, this might actually be when we're closest to God or when he might be trying to teach us something. We should pay attention to those moments. And this is a hard one and I love it though. We'll talk about it a little more later. And then lastly, God needed to address a pivotal concern in a proper moment in the proper way. God is choosing to restabilize Israel by reminding them of his power, their limited understanding of his ways and his promises of their faithfulness. Yeah, to make sure that wasn't a B. Uh, it's particularly pertinent that this comes at a moment of despair, right? This matters. When they feel God has forgotten them, this is how God chooses to respond. And I love this. Even when we don't deserve it and we doubt God's goodness, he still reminds us, I am faithful and I love you. And ultimately, I think this is what the Old Testament is all about, right? It's a record of God's people crying out for help after they run their lives into the ground and God choosing to step in and remind them that his power is made perfect in weakness and that he is faithful. All right, so that's my read of the passage. Now, what do we do with this? How does this passage come to us this morning? And I think as we uh, try to wrap our heads around this, we should just follow Isaiah's own lead here. Do we need to take these questions and do some of our own self-reflection? Maybe just like Israel, we need to spend some time thinking about some hard truths about ourselves that we'd rather deny and maybe we too might need a reminder of God's faithfulness to us after we do that. So I've got three points for how I think this passage could be speaking to us today. First, let's do some self-reflection and talk about exile. Second, let's consider how we respond to God being distant. And then third, let's finish by looking at God's response. So I'm gonna start with this first one. And I'll acknowledge it's never really fun to spend some time thinking about the ways we fall short but I think it's a valuable exercise. And I think we may be going into a season of our own exile here in the States. 
Now, I wanna be really, really careful what I mean by this up front. I don't think what Christians are facing in the States today is anything close to persecution. I intentionally started with Ukrainian Christians for a reason. I want us to have a vantage point to compare our own situation to if we think we have it really bad, because we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are going through much worse. That said, Christians in the US have enjoyed a really high social standing for much of our country's history. And I think we can feel that rapidly changing before us, especially here in New England. There's a growing level of hostility in this country towards Christians that didn't exist 20 years ago. And I think we can all acknowledge that elephant in the room. And if that's the case, I think we should ask ourselves what could be causing this and why it might be happening. And when I talk to some of my friends, I often hear people say, Christians, culture is going liberal and that's why we're losing, right? And there could be some truth to this, but what if we as believers in the United States are actually the problem? What if the problem doesn't have anything to do with culture and has a lot more to do with our inability to grapple with our own sins and the ways we mirror Israel? What if God's been trying to get our attention for a long time and we haven't been listening, so he's choosing to shake things up to help get our attention? What if the church is losing its place in culture because we've compromised our moral credibility and voice, right? Depending on where you fall in the political aisle, one of these two should hit you, right? Think about the political alliances we've formed, compromising our own moral values to align ourselves with leaders we believe will advance our social position. On the other side, what about the ways we've gotten softer on contentious social issues because we wanna make ourselves more palatable to the culture? But what if we take this a step further? Could it be that people are walking away from the faith because the church is too similar to culture? What if it actually has nothing to do with hot button political issues, but a lot more to do with the way we lived our lives in the day to day? Think about the ways we've historically idolized wealth, power, and prestige in the church and in our own hearts. What about our obsession with work and performance? How about our desire for material comfort? Well, none of these are bad things. When we turn them into idols, we start to look a lot more like the culture around us rather than like Christians. And if our lives don't look any different than the people who don't share our faith, how are we ever going to be salt and light? Could it be that we are like Israel and God might be pushing us into exile for our own good to help reframe our perspective? Okay, I'll pause here. Have I made anyone uncomfortable yet? Um, My wife reminds me that you're an eight on the Enneagram and you have a lot more comfort with discomfort than most people. Um, So in light of that, like I'll be honest, I hate this line of thinking too. It's really uncomfortable for me and I'd rather ignore it. It's easier to ignore our corporate sins and only think individually rather than communally about the ways we've fallen short. But here's the thing, despite the fact that taking responsibility for our collective sins is uncomfortable for us, God did this all the time in the Old Testament prophets. The things I've listed here are all things God addressed in the life of Israel throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. And I would rather be uncomfortable and listen to God's voice rather than being comfortable and ignoring it. If God was willing to spend so much time on this line of questioning in the Old Testament, shouldn't we also be spending some time prioritizing that as a church in the United States? And if we're sensing this move towards exile, what would it look like to approach this moment with a sense of humility? What if rather than waging another culture war, we examined our own institutions, acknowledged our sins as a collective group and repented? I often wonder how this might shift the cultural narrative on how people think about Christians.
And I also want to say loud and clear that exile could be a good thing for us. Remember one of the interpretations of this passage. God reminded his people that their weakness was ultimately good for them. God used exile in the life of Israel to root out sins and remind them of their dependence on God. And while exile wouldn't be comfortable, would that be the worst outcome in the world if it brought us closer to Jesus and made us look a lot more like him? If Ukrainian Christian refugees are experiencing a spiritual revival in their circumstance, I surely don't think we need to be scared about the moment we're facing here in the United States. All right, so that's point one. Don't worry, points two and three are a little shorter. Um, The second important takeaway to consider is how we respond to God being distant. And as I mentioned, when Israel lost her social standing and went into exile, she started to doubt God's goodness. Israel was wrongfully equating God's faithfulness with material comfort. Uh, when, they, when things turned for the worse, they questioned if God really loved them. And this one's really convicting for me, especially as someone who's experienced a lot of comfort in my life. But I don't think I'm the only one here either. As American Christians, we've all had a lot of comfort. It's easy in the States to think, oh, I'm not a one percenter or I'm not a 10 percenter. This doesn't apply to me. But compared to most of the world, we live in lavish wealth and it could be tempting to believe in a prosperity gospel. But this is a lie, right? We know this. God does not promise us comfort and he often uses conflict and trials to shape our character and draw us closer to him. He used exile and prophetic critique to draw Israel back to himself and he could be doing the same thing for us today. And I think it would benefit all of us to think long and hard about our response to this moment and how we, how we respond when God feels distant, right? As we've already stated, we're in a difficult moment for Christians in our culture. And I you know, think it could very well get worse. What about the economy? There aren't many millennials who have worked through a recession and it's been 14 years for, since 2008 for folks who have seen this before, right? Do we trust God's goodness in our life? when situations turn for the worse and we're not as comfortable as we've been in the last couple of decades. All right, so that's the doom and gloom. Now on to the good part, right? Third and most important, let's look at the way God chooses to respond to this. After two really, really tough points, right? Acknowledging where we fall short and owning that we might doubt God's goodness when circumstances get difficult, we might think we're due for a rebuke. At least that's what I would think. That's the opposite of how God chooses to respond to Israel in this moment. Amidst the sin and doubt, we get this passage, right? I'll read it one more time. O Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. Even with a full record of their sin exposed and after they've doubted God, he still chooses to come in and remind them of his faithfulness. He steps in to encourage his people in their moment of weakness by reminding them of his faithfulness and telling him he is with them in this moment of despair. What is said in transition matters, doesn't it? Even though Israel is doubting and wavering, God calmly reminds them they can't do this on their own. He asks them these thought-provoking questions 
to challenge their perspective. And then he reminds them ultimately that they can find rest in him. They can stop trying so hard. And when we are weak and tired, God does the same thing for us today. He says, please stop working so hard to try to understand and let me take over. Just trust me. Yes, I absolutely think we should take time to acknowledge our own sin, but then we should quickly redirect our focus to our loving, faithful, and unsearchable God. And how much more can we trust him today after seeing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, right? We have a record of God in person for us and what he's done for us that Israel didn't have then. So as I wrap things up, a few thoughts on how I think we could take this with us as we leave today. I think the first point is let's be self-reflective and honestly assess our own sin rather than being an expert in the sins of others. If you're anything like me, it's a lot easier to point it out in other people than to own it in yourself. Uh, The second is let's be ready to face exile with perseverance. We've enjoyed a lot of comfort and privilege as Christians in the United States and let's not waver just because things are getting difficult. And then finally, if, if you are wavering and doubting, look up to the night sky or pull up one of those images of the James Webb telescope. And remember that our God calls each of those stars out like an army on a nightly basis, right? He does not grow faint and he does not grow weary. He's not surprised by this moment and he's ready to use it for our good and for our glory. And so finally, I wanna go back to this story from Ukraine for one final word. I'm gonna read to you the last two paragraphs of this story to show you what I think living this out in practice could look like. So even as they struggle, these believers feel they're here for a reason. One says he's encouraged to see Christians doing what the church in a country at war should do. He's encouraged to see Christians doing what the church should do for sojourners, foreigners, widows, and orphans. And he's encouraged that he too has a role to play. We're where God wants us to be. It's a reminder that he's in charge. He decides where each of us needs to be stationed and our best response is yes. It's a small part of what God is doing through the church, but I feel blessed that we're able to come alongside others. And perhaps that's why at a warehouse in Warsaw, despite the heavy presence of war, another presence is also tangible, one of hope and anticipation and even joy. My last night there, a pastor encouraged his group of volunteers to press on in faith. The Holy Spirit is making us look a lot more like Jesus. And when we look like Jesus, we're showing others the way to Jesus. We don't understand everything, but we can continue to trust in our God. And so as we look forward to press, look on to press forward in our own cultural moment, I pray we'd follow the lead of our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this morning, this chance to be together on a hot morning. Thanks for your faithfulness in the life of Israel and your faithfulness to us in this moment. Pray that you'd meet all of us today and help us understand that, that you love us, that you're here with us in this moment and you're looking to help us press forward. In your name we pray, amen.